Hi, this is Tony at Cover Magazine. I'm speaking to Brandon Nido, Liberty's Head Specialist for Retail Investment Propositions. Brandon, thank you very much for taking time to talk to me. Thank you, Tony. Pleasure to be with you. It's um, great to see you. And um, we're talking about offshore investments. Now, I know this is a topic that um, you see everywhere. Um, when you Google it, there's so many different opinions and all those sort of things. And the reason for it is because it is, first of all, a very important topic. Um, and especially if you live in South Africa, but nowadays probably in any country. But I think secondly, also because there are so many angles that you can look at offshore investment and really trying to figure out, okay, what is it actually all about? How do you participate? All of that sort of thing. So maybe to just kick off from my side, with the RAND being at the place where it is and um, the prospects in the South African economy that shows it's not necessarily going to become better, but who knows? Is it still possible and viable to invest offshore? Tony, the, the question you start with about the RAND, I think, is is plagued a lot of people's minds. And it's the the common conversation, you know, around the braai. Look at the South African RAND. We're sitting at 1850 now. We'll be at 30 RAND in a couple of months' time. And what's going to happen at elections? And, and we're, ne we're the next Zimbabwe, et cetera. I mean, I'm sure you've heard all of this before. But yeah. I think there's there's a more methodical way to think about this and a little more structured way to think about it. And that's the message we're trying to to get out to the wider public, right? So when you think about offshore, what is the first thing in your mind? Is it the currency? Should it be the currency? Or should it be, why do I need to invest offshore? Why can't I just be happy with 100% of my investments in the South African market only? And I think that's a good starting point, right? So if you had 100% of your investments in the South African market, first and foremost, that goes against the concept of diversification, right? Now, when I talk about diversification, people think it's a big word. It's simply, all we're saying is don't put all your eggs in one basket. And by the way, mm. that basket happens to be an emerging market country sitting on the southern tip of Africa, whose GDP makes up 0.4% of global GDP. 0.4% yes. of global GDP. I mean, that's that's almost, I don't want to say that's almost, almost nothing. nothing. <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite harsh, but, but yes, it is almost nothing, right? And yeah. we've got developed market countries like the US and even, even China and, and India and the UK and, and, and large parts of Europe that make up a large part of that GDP. And I think the number we currently rank on is in the mid thirties right now. So in terms of GDP, we understand where we stand, but, but let's take it a little deeper. Currently you have access to, to stock markets in South Africa. And yes, there's a few different stock markets. I get that, but predominantly we're talking about the Johannesburg stock exchange or the JSE. That's the mm -hmm. most, the most popular market, the most frequently used, and it happens to be, you know, the biggest stock exchange in Africa. So that's what we, we're talking about, right? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, on the GSE, over the past, I'm going to use the year 2000 as, as our benchmark here. Over the past 23 years, you've seen your opportunity set on the GSE reduce significantly. So I'm talking about 
just over 600 companies being listed in the year 2000, dropping all the way down to right now, I think you're sitting around the 310 mark. Yeah. So, so you've basically seen your opportunity set halve on the JSE over the past 23 years. Now, now you ask yourself, yes, I can invest in different fund managers. Yeah, yeah, that's that's part of diversification that people talk about. But what is the opportunity set that those fund managers have? It's the JSE if they're talking about locally only, right, and equity, and and their opportunity set has significantly reduced over the years. So I think that's a really good starting point. And, and then I suppose from there, the next question is, well, what about those 310? Are they enough? Do they give me access to, to the types of investments that, that I want, that I'm looking for, that's broad enough? Mm. And, and I think that's the next question. Is the, the current uh, opportunity set available on the JSE diverse enough to meet the needs of clients. And I mean, you understand the history of South Africa has a big part to play in what types of companies dominate on the JSC, sure. Yeah. But but so does our natural resources, right? At the end of the day, I mean, we're still predominantly, you know, a mining and resource laden country. And mm. that's why you see the BHPs and the Anglos, et cetera, dominating on the stock market. So yes, we've got a solid financial services system with, with banks that are, are right up there with, you know, amongst the best governed around. Uh, I truly believe that. And financial services, resources and mining, and then you start with a little bit of a head scratch. Because when you look globally, you see clean energy, you see robotics, you see artificial intelligence. Mm. Now, you see uh, semiconductors. Now, these are sectors that are set to dominate, not just today, but for decades to come. And yeah. I ask you, you know, what opportunities to invest in those types of companies do you have in South Africa? And that becomes a bit of a head scratch because we are, we're not blessed in that regard, if I can put it mildly. Mm. Mm. Now, so it's, a, it's about more than the currency. It's about a lot more than the currency. And and sure, sorry, let me take the long way around and come back to your question about the currency. So when you come back to the currency, yes, it's part of your decision. It's, it's part of your decision because a currency is emotional. A currency is often talked about as being the share price of a, cu of a country. So when we see the RAND strengthen, we, we feel good, right? When we see the RAND weaken, we feel horrible. But the economics of a country the stock market don't move hand in hand. You know, our stock market currently actually has a lot of its earnings coming from offshore already. Companies like Nasparas and Process and, and BHP and Anglos, they don't earn all of their revenue in South Africa. Like Richemont's yeah. earning predominantly its revenues in, in China and, and in Europe, not in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the earnings are already coming from offshore. Um, and that's why we can't just be focused on on the RAND when we when we talk about doing investments, right? Um, there's been some work done quite recently by by one of our our peers in the market, which looked at the years in which the RAND has strengthened, and then you decide to take funds offshore versus the RAND, the years in which the RAND has weakened, 
and then you decide to take funds offshore. And yes, there is a difference over the longer term, but it's minimal. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about less than a percent over the longer term. Mm-hmm. It's more an emotional bias that comes into play with the RAND. But if you stay true to your guns, I need to take funds offshore. I'm going to do it every year. I'm taking out this amount of money, regardless of where the RAND is. I think you're putting yourself in a better position overall if that meets the goals that you're trying to achieve. And we'll talk a little more about that uh, later on. Okay, so um, now we know, okay, there's a good reason to go offshore. The The big challenge is that, um, especially from a country like South Africa with all the regulations, etc., it's incredibly difficult to decide how do I do this? What route do I follow? What instruments do I use? How accessible will my money be? All of those sort of so multiple questions. What happens if I die unexpectedly? All of those sort of things. How do you actually work through all of that? How do you, as a company, cater for all the different needs of a diverse audience? And that's a, a fabulous question. And you're right. Every single person out there is unique with unique circumstances with unique family dynamics and and we need to be able to cater for that so first and foremost um, i'd like to say that making use of an accredited suitably qualified experienced skillful financial advisor will will go a long way in helping you on this journey because i'm here to talk about broad themes and i'll and i'll give you a few examples now of course I won't really be able to dive into each and every person who's listening to this in, t- in terms of their unique circumstances. So I absolutely will start off by saying uh, an accredited financial advisor would be first and foremost in my mind when I start thinking about doing offshore investments and the different routes available. So so broadly, some of the different routes available, people call it uh, indirect offshore investing where I invest in RANDs into a financial services provider. That financial services provider receives my rents, converts it to an offshore currency and invests that offshore currency, making use of this financial services company offshore limits, right? Loosely, we call this an asset swap. And thereafter, my payments come back to me in rents. So, so as an investor, I've invested in rents, my payout is in rents, but I've invested offshore because I've made use of the offshore limits allowed to this financial services provider. Now, loosely, we call this indirect. People have got different names for it, but loosely, this is called going offshore indirectly. Now, the the opposite of this is going offshore directly in hard currency. So I want to take my RANs. I want to convert them to US dollar, as an example. Then I want to hand it over to a financial services provider who will invest for me um, in either, you know, we'll talk about asset classes shortly, but in investment choices of my my choosing. And when the funds are paid out, they are actually paid out in US dollar. And it's then my choice whether I want to keep it in US dollar or convert it back into rands, etc. So 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 broadly, that's that's two different ways of going offshore, either indirectly with RAND investments or directly in hard currency via dollar-based investments. But I mean, there's there's other ways of going offshore, right? Just converting currency into 
dollar, euro, pound. I mean, that that's a means of, of taking your funds offshore mm. as well. It's just not very popular because the, the types of interest rates that you yield or that are, are yielded in, in these currencies um, are fairly low. Yes, they've inc- improved dramatically over the past few years as, we, as we've seen interest rates increase because of the inflation scourge that we have. But they still are not similar to what South African investors are used to. And let me just use a basic example, right? So I invest in a money market in South Africa right now. What am I looking at? Close to 8% maybe, right? Um, I invest in the, in the equivalent in the US and I'm talking about three, three and a half, right? Yeah. Now that's that's very different, and and therefore I'm saying that it's not as popular for people to just convert the currency and leave the investment. They they often mm-hmm. convert the currency and then make a decision in terms of which asset class would I like to go into. Often, often it's 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 equities when you go offshore. Occasionally, properties and bonds uh, come into play. I think bonds more recently, as we've seen interest rates increase, and now. The, the coupon rates being paid on, on certain bonds or the yields being set, being paid on certain credit instruments have reached a level where they are becoming interesting to South African investors. Therefore, you're seeing a little more going into bonds and, and partly into cash than let's call it five years ago, where offshore these instruments were yielding close to zero. I mean, you had negative interest rates for a long time abroad, right? And, and it's only post um post covid and and with inflation you know dismantling our our monthly budgets as i'm sure yeah. everyone's experiencing we've yeah. seen interest rates continue to to increase in order to try and 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 stave off inflation and that's why we're seeing bonds and cash suddenly become an option again offshore whereas equities have pretty much ruled the roost offshore for for a long period of time so so now when we get to um the the job of the advisor um because obviously and and i think we we don't even have to discuss i think when you when you get to this type of investment and you get to um money that you want to place offshore etc those decisions you should seek the help of an advisor um how do they um you know work through this environment themselves to make sure that they understand and know how to uh, diversify offshore in a safe way for their clients. Sure, there's there's a few different layers to this, right? So, so I suppose the first level is truly understanding what the client is trying to achieve and what their family dynamics are, and that's going to help you to decide which instrument we we ke- we keep talking about investing offshore, but Investing offshore, whether it's directly or indirectly, then needs to happen via a an investment instrument. So do you go offshore via a unit trust? Do you go offshore via an endowment? Now, these are questions that will be answered by the advisor, but it's only after consultation with the client based on their needs. And I'm just going to use a few examples mm. to try and explain this, right? So yeah. the difference, the basic difference between a unit trust versus uh, an endowment wrapper or a life wrapper as it's sometimes called, is that with a unit trust, you're going to pay tax as a client in your own hands, right? So you will need to declare all the interest that you earn, all the capital gains that you make, 
and you will pay tax on this in your own hands. Whereas with the life wrapper or with the endowment, as it's commonly known, it's the company or the financial services provider who will pay tax according to what we call the five fund taxation approach. But essentially, the tax is taken care of for you and you receive your proceeds net of tax. Some people say tax free. That is no, 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 that that's incorrect. It's, it's net of tax because there is tax being paid. It's just being paid by the financial services provider on your returns rather than paid by you directly. But, but tax is one component. Access is another. If I speak, to, if as an advisor, I speak to the client and I realize that this client actually needs access to the funds within the next year or two, then suddenly my decision between this, this unit trust or collective investment scheme, I suppose that's the proper way of, of terming it right now, although colloquially it's still called a unit trust. The decision between this collective investment scheme and this endowment, if the client needs funds in one to two years, becomes a non-decision because an endowment pretty much locks you in for a period of five years, whereas a unit trust is, is fully available at, at any time, right? So, so that pushes me in the direction of the collective investment scheme. Now, the ability to nominate a beneficiary, that, that could be a further reason that, that helps you tip the scales or helps the advisor um, to better understand your situation. Do you, do you want to allocate a beneficiary? Yes or no? And if you do understand that you'll be able to do that with an endowment, but you won't be able to do that on the side of the unit trust. On the side of the unit trust, it will pay out according to the wishes of your will. So suddenly when you're doing a unit trust, you need to ensure you've got a, an adequate will in place that takes care of, of these funds as well. There's a few extra layers, um, specifically business owners. They tend to prefer the endowment because of, uh, we call it creditor protection. There's a, Section 63 yeah. of the Long-Term Insurance Act talks to creditor protection. If your investment's been in place for a period of greater than three years and beneficiaries are, are spouse or children. So creditor protection can come into play as well. A state duty is going to be payable either way. So whether you decide to go via a unit trust or via an endowment, a state duty is payable. But I want to, at this point, bring your attention to when you're going offshore, when you invest in a collective investment scheme offshore, there is something called CITUS. Now, now CITUS is essentially a state duty of the country that your investment is housed in. So the two most common examples in South Africa, um, was the South Africans deal with, I'm gonna use the UK and the US, right? So in the UK, CITUS is levied at a level of 40% on values that exceed 325,000 pounds. There's a, a rollover benefit where if it's if it's yourself and your spouse, you can roll over so you only start paying from, from double that amount of 650,000 pounds. But CITUS is levied at 40%. And in South Africa, we, we're more familiar with the 20% estate duty and 25% if it's greater than 30 million. Mm. Similarly, similarly, in the US, CITUS is also levied, levied at 40%. But this is a little more punitive. It's levied at 40% on amounts exceeding $60,000, which is obviously a much, much lower amount. Mm -hmm. And you can understand that in the, in the US, there is not a, a certain rollover benefit that's allowed. So literally after $60,000, CITUS comes into play. So it's these types of questions that an advisor will pose to the client to figure out where will this client 
better be suited? Is it indirect or direct? Okay, let's say direct is the option. I want to go hard currency, US dollar. That is that is the investment of choice. Okay, fine. I've made that decision. Now, it, do I go off via a collective investment scheme or do I go off via a life wrapper? And these types of questions will help me decide. Let's say I've gone through all of that. The next stage in the process is, and let's assume I've gone the endowment route, which is actually quite popular when you're going offshore in hard currency. Let's say I've gone the offshore hard currency endowment route. The next question is, okay, which funds do I invest in? And we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes time, I'm sure. Mm. So, so this all basically tells me that um, the financial advisor themselves will need access to knowledge, um, advice, people with the experience of, like you now say, how does CITES work in the different countries? What is going to happen there? Um, they sh Essentially, they shouldn't just be relying on their own knowledge because nobody can have that much unless you focus on that one thing. So where do they go for that? No, absolutely, absolutely, and and we call it our offshore ecosystem, right? So, you know, it's it's yeah. an internal term, but an advisor does not operate in a vacuum. And I'm just gonna gonna mention some of the support structures in place for this advisor because, as you rightfully say, it is it is virtually impossible to house all of this knowledge on all of the different jurisdictions out there. So, as an advisor, you have access to an investment. A BDM or business development manager. Some people call them an investment specialist, and and this person will assist you with with product knowledge in terms of making decisions between the the various vehicles that are available. They'll assist assist you with the financial planning, just to delve deeper into what the client's needs are. But that's available to you. But in addition to that, you have someone like a legal marketing specialist. Now, this legal marketing specialist is more clued up in the sense of estate duty uh, and in terms of estate planning and will help structure, will help the advisor structure, okay, here's the family dynamics of this person. Here's the potential beneficiaries we have in place. Here's the business interests that exist. Here's what's local. Here's what's offshore. Let's ensure the will's in place. Let's ensure it's properly structured. That's where the legal marketing specialist comes into play. But it doesn't end there. What if you've got a client who's ultra high net worth who wants to put in place things like an offshore trust to, to ensure intergenerational wealth transfer? Because I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I mean, we all realize this, right? We're pretty much coming to the end of the baby boomers. Um, yeah. And no offense to anyone listening here, but <laughs> the, the the generation is is coming to an end. And where does all that wealth go now? You know, there's a few trillion at stake here. It's about intergenerational wealth transfer, and an offshore trust is often used in that regard. Now, an advisor directly cannot, or, or not all advisors can directly set up an offshore trust, and they'll need assistance of international fiduciary services. So again, we make that service available within our ecosystem. We have access to, as an example, the Standard Bank International Fiduciary Services team, which sits in Jersey and sits in Mauritius to help you structure your, your offshore trusts. But mm -hmm. again, we, we can't just stop there. What if there's uh, questions around different countries to immigrate to tax residency? We, we need to make sure that that's catered for and we've got external uh, consultants who can help us in, in that regard. So it really is 
an ecosystem that the advisor is supported by in order mm -hmm. to ensure that the advice given to clients are suitable to their actual uh, needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes absolute sense, you know, because it's not a one person job, um, that whole thing. So maybe just now to to close the, um, off this conversation, Brandon, obviously, um, we're talking offshore investments and you guys must have sort of a flagship, um, a sort of a product that you utilize that suits most people in that environment, your general audience and so on. Um, maybe you can just give us a bit of an idea as to how you approach that. Sure. So in terms of, of, of products, we, we take care of both the endowment or the wrapped element and a collective investment scheme or the investment account approach. So we've got both those elements available. One's called the Liberty Offshore Investment Plan. That's our endowment offering. And then we've got Liberty Global Direct, which would be our collective investment schemes, investment account direct offering. So we've got both of these options available. As I mentioned, the, de the decision to go into either of them depends on your underlying circumstances, but those would be our, our flagship ranges available. But I want to take this just one level deeper because I think this is this will, will, will close, off, off, close us off nicely. So I've made the decision on going with a hard currency. I've made the decision to go the endowment route. The next part of this decision is, well, you know, there's 1,300 unit trusts available in South Africa, uh, RAND domicile. There's another mm. probably 10,000, <clears> you know, <throat> offshore uh, denominated funds out there. How mm. on earth do I decide which is the correct fund to meet um, my client's needs? And, mm. and I suppose that's mm. the important word here. What is your client's needs? Does your client want to take funds offshore and earn a... CPI plus one, or, or let me use specific CPI. So, so um, USD CPI plus one return, or is your client taking funds offshore to earn a, a USD CPI plus four return, as an example? Now, that's going to help the advisor in terms of actually making the decision of which will be the suitable funds. Mm. And then there's some due diligence work that needs to take place, right? So, at Liberty, we have our innate invest team. So our innate invest team runs our DFM or discretionary fund manager business. So we make use of uh, the research team in here, which essentially does due diligence supported by our offices in London on a range of managers from across the world. And essentially does the research investment due diligence to make sure performance is in order operational due diligence to ensure the operations of this business is, is in order. We're looking at what is the size of the assets under management of these different fund managers out there? Who are the actual people involved? What are their qualifications? What's their process? What's their philosophy? Do all of this work and essentially consolidate that list, take away some of the some of the risk for the advisor and take bring this universe from 10,000 down to, I'm gonna call it uh, 50 odd funds. So suddenly you've reduced a massive amount of risk associated by by bringing this fund list narrower and you've done this by teams which literally specialize in going out there doing the investment due diligence doing the operational due diligence doing the hard yards and doing it on a daily basis to to get to a space where you've got funds that are appropriate to meet the various needs 
of of clients, right? So mm-hmm. we've got that facility available. We've got the our our flagship range would be the in the offshore space would be our our discretionary fund manager model portfolios. So the innate invest model portfolios um, that are available, and we've got very and this is very exciting, right? So so within the group, we've got an asset manager called Stanlib, which I think is quite a popular name. Uh, in in South Africa, given it's probably got the third highest assets, north of six hundred billion uh, in South Africa. But Stanlib has recently, in the past uh, two years, not just struck up a relationship, but formed a strategic partnership with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Now, now when I say the name J.P. Morgan, I think most people in the financial services realm. Actually, I lie. Most people in this world <laughs> know who J.P. Morgan is. And yeah. Stanlib have managed to forge a strategic partnership with JP Morgan, whereby we've we can not just bounce ideas off them, but actually involved in detailed conversations. And JP Morgan actually manages some of our offshore portfolios. And on the offshore side, our dollar denominated uh, funds, we've also got JP Morgan representation with where they actually manage this. And here we're talking about extensive research teams positioned throughout the world, researching various different sectors, various different companies. They've got an ESG lens on it, which is obviously very topical right now. So I think between the the DFM team that we've got and the Stanlib team in partnership with JP Morgan, I think predominantly we're going to see a lot of the, the, the clients ending up in those types of solutions, but obviously based on their unique needs and, and circumstances. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, from my side, to to sum up a little bit, in the beginning, when we were sort of just catching up a little bit, we spoke about all the opportunities that are available to people to study and all of those sort of things. And if I look at now the conversation to try and sort of almost summarize for myself is advisors now versus 20, 30 years ago have got so much opportunity to diversify their client's portfolio constructively and to take advantage of so many different um, opportunities. And in that same process, they've got access to so many specialists to help them through that, to actually leverage that knowledge and expertise to add value. So for the average advisor today who wants to really add value to their client, especially in offshore space, the opportunities are unlimited. They just need to, um, as we say, free themselves, you know, liberate themselves. <laughs> Tony, we've got more and more clients talking about, I want to study abroad. I want my child to go to the Ivy League. I'm talking about Harvard and Cambridge and Yale and Wharton. We've got people who want to retire abroad. You know, if I can retire in in, in Cape Town, why can't I retire in in Cairo or Costa Rica, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you've got people who who live this global life. I mean, we've got people within our organization who work for Liberty, but live on another continent. That's becoming mm. more and more popular. So I think yeah. the more you see these global nomads, if I can call it that, and and globalization sort of it has penetrated all of our lives right now, right? Um, yeah. The more we see this trend continuing, as you rightfully say, I think the advisors of today versus 20, 30 years ago definitely have to be more 
more clued up in terms of what's happening on offshore markets and and how offshore can fit into their client solutions. And we need to ensure that we put them in the position where they are able to do so by making these ecosystems available to them. Because as you as you said, I think this trend is set to continue. And to top it all off, I mean, even our finance minister said that uh, as of not this budget, but the budget before, you're now allowed up to 45% offshore. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of regulation 28 on your on your pension funds and retirement annuities, et cetera. And that's also piqued people's interest, say. And yeah. made people say, wow, even even the finance minister is going global? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Brandon, thank you so much. It was fascinating talking to you, and um, I'm glad that we could explore this in a bit more detail. Thanks, Tony. Really appreciate your time. Cheers.